I love holistic, comprehensive theology. I love when somebody reminds us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I also love when somebody says, yeah, because it's God who's at work in you to willing to do according to his good pleasure. I love when somebody says, we should know God. And I like when somebody says, yeah, or better yet, be known by God. I love, I love holistic. I love one day I chose the Lord Jesus, and I love somebody to remind us that Jesus says, well, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I love, I love it, I love it. I love holistic theology. How about this one? You are saved not by works. And let everyone say amen. And I love when somebody reminds us, oh, you are saved by works, just not your own, by the works of another. And I love when someone reminds us that, and once saved because of the work of another, now he's empowered you to go do work. Today, we come to a passage of scripture, probably one of the most popular parables and stories in the life of our Lord Jesus in the scriptures, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. Was I not here when it was read? I, was, I came in late. Was it read? Okay, amen. It's been read. And in Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37, this parable could be summarized as the whole duty of man, the whole duty of mankind. The parable in context is about a dialogue and almost a sparring session between an expert in the law and the one who actually not only gave us the law, but fulfilled it, the only one to fulfill it. The late Presbyterian notable Pastor James Boyce has actually commented that this, par this parable gives us at least four categories of people, classes of people. There's a victim, there are victimizers, there's the indifferent, and there's the concerned. And really, that's what humanity is all about. It's all about people who, who walk in certain traits. Every now and then, it's true, there really can be somebody who was a victim. Sometimes people don't like anyone to claim that they're a victim. I'm with you. Everyone shouldn't claim they're a victim, but somebody is a victim. <laughs> Every now and then, there is a victimizer you are going to run into the indifferent and you're going to encounter the concerned. This text puts all of them in focus and then hops over all of them to say, I'm not here to complain about the victim. I'm not here to complain about the victimizer. I'm here to push everyone to the same solution. Victim, victimizer, indifferent, concern. I want to push you all to the same solution. And of course, that is the one who gives us the whole duty of man. If you have your copy of God's word, I'm going to walk through the text. First, the parable, the parable, the purpose of the parable, 25 to 29. And here's a question we all should ask right here in these verses. The question we all should ask. And behold, the lawyer stood up and put, him, put to him the test to Jesus, saying, Teacher, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Luke starts off, this is a test. This is a question. (laughs) He even has a humble posture because teachers were in the sitting position. So when you had a, a question, you would stand up and you would ask your question as a sign of respect. So he stands up with a respectful posture, but Luke gives us inside scoop. This is not a legitimate question. It is a test. He does not have legitimate motives. This is to test Jesus. This is a lawyer. The word lawyer may be scribe in your Bible. This lawyer was an expert in Torah. He was an expert in the Old Testament. He was the one people would go to to figure out the law. What does the law say? What does the law say and how should we apply it? This was his wheelhouse. Perhaps he thought that his arms were not too short to box with God. Perhaps he wanted to see if his intellectual prowess and his knowledge of the scriptures rivaled or compared or at least came close to the rabbi from Galilee. (laughs) Well, he asked Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus, knowing that his motive is not pure, he doesn't condemn him for the question. And I would like to say today, he actually is on to something. This is a million dollar question. Have you asked it lately? Have you asked it? What must I do to have eternal life? Let every man, woman, and child in here ask the question and not assume the answer. Receive the answer from this text. We obviously care about extended life, all the surgeries, all the technologies, all the thises and thats to try to preserve our lives. So we like extended life. Have you ever thought about eternal life? This is the quest of many in Jesus's day. Luke likes to talk about people who want to know about salvation. You know, today, people don't talk about being rescued. People don't talk about being saved. People don't even talk about sin anymore because we're not sinners. We make mistakes. You know, we, we, uh, you know it's not sin. It's a crime. It's not a crime. It was something happened to me. I, 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 it's my, my upbringing. It's, it, it's, nobody's a sinner anymore. Therefore, nobody needs salvation anymore. And therefore, we don't ask. What about eternal life? What about living forever? Everyone just throws everybody in eternity. The worst drug dealer will have an RIP on the, his casket, maybe the, 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 the limo that takes him to the graveyard, and they will all look up and say, rest in peace, big homie. And he could be the worst person. He could be the most antithetical to God person, and people will put him in eternity. Have you asked this? What? Does it have to take for me to have eternal life? Luke 18, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) Acts 23, Luke also wrote volume two, it's called Acts. Acts 2, 23, uh, 2, 37, he says that Peter, when he was preaching, the crowd said, hold on, then what must we do? Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, when Paul got out and the Philippian jailer thought it was curtains, and when he realized it wasn't curtains, he said, what must I do to be saved, sirs? Have you asked this? Don't sleep on that part. Verse 26, he says, Jesus answers him to flip the script because Jesus, even though he knows the motive is impure, Jesus does like where the question can lead. And so he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
the law. That's just another way of saying either the Pentateuch or saying the whole Old Testament. What do you find in the scriptures? One of the things you got to like here is that this was the era where there was an authoritative source. There's nothing worse than speaking with people about questions they're asking with nobody agreeing on the authoritative source. There's nothing like playing rough house with no ref. <laughs> you found me. No, I didn't. You found me. No, I didn't take the ball out. No, it went out. No, I didn't. You travel. No, you didn't. I'm taking my ball. I'm leaving. There's nothing like playing anything where there's no authority to rule this way or that way. <laughs> Jesus refers him to the authoritative source and he actually, that's his thing. My thing is the law. I believe the law is right. You believe the law is right. And now you want to flip it on me? Okay, what does the law say? Jesus says, I, I believe that the answer is in the scriptures. Have you not only asked the question, what do I do to have eternal life? Have you gone to the scriptures to find out? Or are you on the internet? <laughs> You know, for us, we don't go to the scriptures these days. And unless you're a little older, perhaps you have not been trained to go to the scriptures and to be around communities that keep the scriptures around. And even if we disagree, we stay together as we tussle to find out what does thus say of the Lord? Our source today is Wikipedia said, Google it. Hey, Siri. Hey, Alexa. The Internet is undefeated. <laughs> See, and they're always trying to get in and do the answering. It's not the scriptures. There was a preacher, a well-known preacher. I won't mention his name. But he sat down and he talked to a teacher of preachers. And the, preacher, the teacher of preachers said, tell me about the way you deal with scripture, tradition, experience, and, and, and reason. He said, well, I grew up. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is enough. The Bible is true. He said, but you know, the more I live, if it was at 90% for me, the Bible is now down to 60%. He said, you know, truthfully, the more I live, I'm more of a 25, 25, 25, 25. Scripture, reason, experience, tradition. In other words, this is the preacher of preacher. And the preacher of preacher looked at him almost like we all have our view. Jesus and the skeptic, the scribe, the lawyer, they agree. We can go to the scriptures. Verse 27. So the lawyer says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is what we call the whole duty of man. It comes from at least two uh, passages of scripture that were common in a Jewish person's mind and their home and in their, their, their circle. One is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, which tells you that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might or strength. And it comes from Leviticus 19, 18, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. By the time we get here, these two have been put together as a little snug snapshot of what it means to actually fulfill the law. It says that you should have a God word focus and you should have a man word focus. That you should ever live before God, loving him with your heart, your emotions. Bring your emotions to this building. Bring your emotions to your Bible studies. Bring your emotions to the church, uh, to, to your work job. Tell people that with my emotions, 
People are going to games today. I hear the Lakers are in town. Somebody's going to go to the Lakers to see the Lakers and the Hawks. And when they go, everybody will have their emotions on Front Street. God says, love me like that. Adore me. Rejoice in me. Love them with your soul, all your soul, your consciousness, your innermost being. Love them. Be conscious of me. Act like I'm in the room. Act like I'm in the room. Act like I'm there. Act like you understand. You're conscious of my delights. Act like it. Love God with all your strength, your motivation, your zeal. Give him your best hours. Give him the best you. Give him you when you're most alert. Give him you when you're pepped and you're perked and you're on. He says, this is how you ought to love God. The point is give the Lord the, your first, your best, your all. The best you, all of you for all of him. That's what he says is the first commandment. But he says you also should be manward. You should love your neighbor as yourself. You see this all throughout the scriptures. Even the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 12 was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And the Lord Jesus put these two together. He says, you know what the, the word says? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and so put, keep these two together. You see it all throughout the scriptures that there is a, the whole duty of man. It's a God obligation and it's a man obligation. Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son says, I've sinned against heaven and you. (laughs) Luke 18, the parable. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. That's a way of saying this dude was worthless in both directions. The Ten Commandments, the first four are Godward. No other gods before me. No idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. You get all the way down and you start from six on. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill another person. Do not commit adultery. It's, it's, it's always Godward and manward, the whole duty of man. And some people, they love God. Leave me alone. As long as I got Jesus, I don't need anybody else. Other people are like, man, you always preaching. I'm asking you what you think. Well, verse 28, the Lord Jesus likes his answer. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I like that Jesus affirmed his answer. Knowing his agenda, knowing his motive is not on point. He affirms it. And we would do well to not vilify people just because we know normally they're up to something. Or behind the scenes they're trying to do something. Truth is truth and we can say amen when it's true. It often gives us leverage to be able to go forward and help redirect their, pure, their, their motives back to something that is a little more where we want to take them. I heard one of the most anti-woke, anti-social justice preachers on a show. And the guy said, I'm not talking about the organization. I'm not talking about the organization. I want to ask you as a preacher, if Jesus were here Would he say Black Lives Matter? Not the organization, would Jesus say it? He would say all lives matter. I didn't ask you that. Obviously, all lives matter. I'm asking you, would he say black? And they spent a little time tussling because this preacher was afraid to say Jesus would say it. Jesus says, I know you're up. I know your agenda is driving this. But I can still say, you're right, the Bible is true. This is a truth. 
And then it keeps going. The problem is that the man's question is off because he doesn't just say, what must I do to have eternal life? He says, what must I do to inherit it? In the words of the New Testament scholar Don Carson, to inherit something requires just being a part of the right family. In other words, you really don't do anything to be in the right family. <laughs> you're born into the family you're born into, and therefore your inheritance is what your inheritance is. If your parents don't have anything to leave you, that family gives you nothing. If your family has everything to leave you, you get everything. And you didn't do anything. You just are a part of it. So when he said, what must I do? He was really trying to qualify himself to receive the eternal life. And so today, can we just say that if eternal life is on your radar today, here's the question, not what must you do? But what has our Lord already done? We all fall short. And so some people will lower the standard or muddy the standard or the right response is, I need eternal life. But based on the whole duty of man, I fall too short. Now I admit I fall short. I'm poor in spirit. Now I mourn about it. I'm not indifferent. Now I'm meek about it. I get on my knees. And now I hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Give it to me, Lord, the source and the provider of the eternal life, which I cannot do anything to get. The text goes on to tell us why this is a struggle. 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Oh, here it is. The first time is, what should I do? <laughs> and now it's, then who's my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself, Luke says. To justify yourself means he wanted to come out looking already measured up. To justify means to declare righteous. When you want to justify yourself, you want people to think you're right. Or at least you want to come out looking right. Or at least you want to be not as wrong. <laughs> My kids and I, we used to watch a lot of animations, and there's one called Megamind. Love it. I recommend it. <laughs> Megamind. <laughs> and Megamind had a problem admitting he was wrong. So he would say, you're right, and I'm less right. <laughs> Instead of you're wrong, I'm wrong. Our fallenness makes us want to justify ourselves. So it's a struggle when God says you can't justify. You can't come out looking good. You have to admit you don't come out looking good. Then you allow me to come in and justify you. We can't justify ourselves. And so he says he wants to justify himself. He wants Jesus to say, well, you know what? You already there. Give me depth. But that is not what the Lord Jesus does. He says, who is my neighbor? What he wanted to do was he wanted to define the neighbor to be something that he already was inclined to already do. Oh, I do love her. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my community. I love my people. Because for the Jews, especially these, they would think that neighbor was restricted to Jews and the covenant people of God. They had no love for Samaritans. They had no love for Gentiles. They felt, those were not my neighbors. My obligation is to my people. You know how we kind of do the same thing, right? We want the neighbor we want. If I got to love you, I better choose who my neighbor is. That way, I won't have trouble loving. Then when somebody says, love your neighbor as yourself, I can say, I measure up. 
I do love them. That's my man. 50 grand. Dap. Oh, somebody coming in that I know I would struggle loving, so I better move. Too many people here that I know I can't kind of love like the Bible says, but rather than admit I'm falling short, I'll just isolate. I'll relocate. What do you think redlining was all about? What do you think this flight and that flight is all about? It's about saying I can't take you all anymore. And therefore, I want to choose my neighbors. So that's what he wanted. He wanted to know who is my neighbor. And the text even kind of gives you this idea. Leviticus 19, where we get you must love your neighbor as yourself. The whole verse is, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So somebody could say, see, it says your people. See, I told you. But if you read down 19, 33, 34, when a stranger is with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Holistic theology. <laughs> do good to all, especially the household of faith. <laughs> well, now that Jesus knows, he's trying to come out looking right. And he's asking about who his neighbor is. Jesus says, now let me get to the core and let me flip the script. So now we get to the parable, 30 to 35. Jesus replied, and this parable gives us an example we should follow. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The text gives you the scene. Jesus goes into a parable. A parable is a true-to-life story, even though it is not an actual story. So it's a true life. So Jesus is really just using a true-to-life story that he's making up. It's a hypothetical, but he's making a point. And you know it because it's a certain man. He doesn't really give names. And he says, this man was going from Jerusalem, which was about, again, he's really going to travel about 3,000 miles downhill. Jerusalem is up top, and he's going all the way to Jericho, which is like 850 feet below sea level. So it's this very steep and rocky, uh, rugged terrain. Traditions are horrible, and there are a lot of caves so people can jump out and they can strip you and beat you and leave you for dead. And so he gives this scenario. There was a man coming, obviously, from Jerusalem, possibly from the temple. He was doing his own thing. And he travels down, and he falls among robbers who strip him, beat him, and, and leave him half dead. Well, the certain men did that. And lo and behold, it says, now by chance, and Jesus is doing this. Jesus is saying by chance. But really what Jesus could say is, and as God would have it, as God would have it, the priests fresh from duty maybe, still getting some of the stains off of them. Woo! Sacrifices all day. Be lifted high and higher. And he was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Now in fairness to the priest, the priest may think, if I touch a corpse, I'll be ceremonially defiled. But the text doesn't let us get away with that. Aha. Uh -huh. Says here, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. What this says is more than I don't want to touch a corpse. This says I don't want to get involved. 
I don't want to sacrifice myself. I don't want to inconvenience myself. I don't really think I should concern myself. He could have said, hey, hey, you all right? Still undefiled. He could have, he could have entered into that man's space and said, I can't touch you because I'm a priest and I don't want to defile myself. <laughs> but he didn't. This would be like the priest or the pastor saying, I don't have time. I spend my time pouring into high-end leaders. Somebody else can take care of you. Well, God's appointed representative. He falls short of his manward obligation. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite. In comes a second-tier religious guy. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. So this would have been another person who comes from a very prestigious family. He's from the line of Levi. He wasn't from the line of Aaron or he would be in the priestly line, but he was from Levi. And so being from Levi, he still, he used to help the priest. He was kind of close to the priest. He was viewed as like a second tier religious person. Same result though. And at this point, you can almost sense that the crowd is listening and maybe in the background, somebody is playing Jay-Z saying, where's the love? Ain't no love in the heart of the city. The most religiously exposed, the most religiously learned, the one with the most credentials all fail to love this neighbor as themselves. But in their mind, he's probably not my neighbor. <laughs> he stripped. In those days, you could tell just from what someone was wearing, what class they were, where they were from. If you could hear their accent, you could tell what region they were from. You could tell whether or not they were yours or they were not. The text doesn't say speculate. The text just says they didn't bother to, 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 to find out. He stripped. We can't tell if he's worthy of it. We can't tell if he's worth it. We can't tell if he deserved this. And the Bible says, don't even, that's not for you to do. Because the text is going to show you through the next person what God expects. And then a Samaritan. Now, this would have scratched the record. Ain't no love. They would have expected for Jesus that it would have been the priest, the Levite, then the layman Israelite. Because for them, the Levites, the layman, already had it for the clergy. They already kind of were like, yeah, I told you. <laughs> you, know, you got to watch these priests. <laughs> these Levites, they think they're better than us. <laughs> and they thought that he was going to come in and he was going to give them some layman's hero story so that they could all say, yeah, yeah, from our from regular folk, <laughs> blue collar <laughs> Round away, kids. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus brings in one of their most hated people, outsiders, someone of the wrong race, someone with the wrong religion, and somebody who had the wrong theology. You know what it's like. This beef started back like 750 years prior to this when Assyria, the Assyrian army, came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they drove them out and gave them the boot. 
And when nothing but the poorest of the poor and some of the stragglers and the people who hid out when everybody got sent out, the people of no value, then the Assyrians, they married, they intermarried, and they produced a biracial, a biracial group known as the Samaritans. So we got the Samaritans because the Samaritans now are part Assyrian and part Jewish. And for the southern kingdom, they were like, that's a deal breaker. You're just as Gentile as the Gentiles, if not worse, because you betrayed the covenant. So they didn't like them. And you know, today we have our people we don't like, isn't it? Don't we? He might be woke. He may believe in CRT. You look like a white evangelical to me. (laughs) You voted for Trump, didn't didn't you? You with Obama, aren't you? Biden, Kamala, which one? (laughs) They all off limits. (laughs) The hostility that's here. You've seen it in your Bibles. John 4, 9. When Jesus is with the Samaritan woman at the well being nice to her. She's stunned. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? And then John tells you, if you don't know about the beef between Samaria and the Israelites, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see it in your Bible, Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius's house. Peter is there and he's preaching and he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit anyone from another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He needed a whole vision just to get over that hump. John chapter 8, 48, peep it when you get home. The Jews said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? (laughs) What a way to talk to the Lord Jesus. You're a Samaritan, aren't you? (laughs) And you have a demon. This is the hero of Jesus' story at this point. But the Samaritan, verse 33, he journeyed, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. He's still stripped. We still don't know who he is. We don't know where he is. We don't know how he got here. But all it says is he saw him half dead, and he had compassion This is the same word that's used when the prodigal father sees his son from afar off, doesn't know if he's coming back for another dose, doesn't know if he's coming back to raid the crib for, I used it all up, give me more. No, he sees him and it says, he had compassion on him, ran and embraced him. Before I know the details, I run towards you to give you compassion. That's what the Samaritan does. Verse 34, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay it when I come back. In other words, Jesus says the Samaritan, the guy you would never expect the righteous thing to come from. He actually gives this guy first aid. He bandages him up. Then his wine, his time, right, on his dime. He uses wine to clean the wounds. He was probably, he could have said, man, it's my last little bit. I was really going to use this because he uses his oil as ointment. 
He puts them in the whip as though it were. It would be like if you had a fresh car, you're like, man, you're going to get my seats dirty. He puts them on his own beast. He takes them to urgent care as though it were. Hey, I know he don't, probably doesn't have any insurance. I don't even know he's still unconscious, but I have him. Hey, he swipes his own car for incidentals. Here, this is about like 24 days because it was about one twelfth of a denarii for a hotel stay in a place like this. So when he gave him two denarii, he says he has about 24 days at least. And guess what? If you need anything else, when I come back, I have you. Put it on my tab. In other words, he was willing to not only do this, he was willing to go beyond. What am I saying, blueprint? <laughs> this is a picture of the gospel. This is the picture of the one who gives tangible expressions of God-like kindness without any preconditions, surmounting any obstacles on your dime. That's what God did. And that's what this picture is. The point and the picture in this parable is a picture of one who actually models what loving neighbor is because neighbor is not just the people you like. It's not just the person to your right and to your left. Your neighbor is anyone that comes across your consciousness and your path that you have the ability to show God-like kindness to because God has been kind to you. We get to the point of the parable, 36 to 37, and this is the lesson we should all learn. The lesson we should all learn. 36, Jesus asked them, which of these three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, couldn't even say the Samaritan, still can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. What'd you say? I can't hear you. The one who showed him mercy, Jesus said, now go and do likewise. He exposed them. You didn't want to know who your neighbor is. You wanted, to, you wanted me to say something that would make you say, I'm already loving the neighbors I plan on loving. But Jesus expands it, just like the law already did. And he says, your neighbor. He says, you want to know who is a neighbor. I want to tell you what it means to be a neighbor. And then I want to tell you, be that to all. Jesus redirects him from the answer, who was my neighbor, to the essence of what it is to be neighborly. And that means that right now, we better do a check on our hearts. Who is it that has fallen out of our favor and they could deserve every ounce of it? And yet God would challenge you that your obligation is to be like God to them because God has been like God to you. Anyone can be your neighbor. Anyone. You can share the love and the compassion of God with that's your neighbor. And when you don't want to do it, it's probably even more your neighbor. It's more of a gospel moment, which is why the Lord Jesus uses a Samaritan and says, let you know what it's like. If I'm telling you that you're supposed to love the Samaritans, there's no one that you can say you shouldn't love. I like what 
Dr. King, that quote, you probably have heard it, I'm sure, in a church like this or in an area like this, where Dr. King sort of gives you almost like a similar type statement when he says, I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity with, to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Now, that's inspiring, isn't it? And I know people who used to quote this earlier on in the racial tension, and they quote this less now. Because all of the enduring did not lead to winning those that they thought they should win. So in other words, they don't feel double victory. <laughs> well, that's why we don't want to ultimately look to the Samaritan. We want to look to Jesus because he's different, as they say. <laughs> he saw our need and he picked up the tab. He was reviled and yet he did not revile back. He came down and stripped himself of glory. He was stripped and he was placed on a cross for us. He was left not for half dead like this man. He was dead for you and for me. He did do what it takes in order to obtain salvation. He did love God perfectly. He did and does love man perfectly. He did die for his enemies even the Samaritans earlier before this in chapter 9 had dishonored him. So the Samaritans are not squeaky clean. Luke chapter 9, 51 to 57 talks like this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. He says, that's not loving our neighbor. And then he went to another village. Blueprint Church. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not go be a good neighbor. The parable of the Good Samaritan is to know that there is a duty, the whole duty of man is a duty that actually we cannot really fulfill. But we have God with obligations and strive at it. And we have man with obligations, strive at it. And do it for even those that you say, I don't think I could do it for. I want to leave you with three questions. The questions, well, three last comments or implications. There's the questions we should all ask. You should ask, what must I do to be saved? If you're not saved in here, ask that question and know that Jesus' answer would be, admit that you're a sinner, you fall short, that anything I tell you to do, you're not going to do it fully. But if you would come to me, I would fill in the gap. Take your sin and your shortcomings upon me. 
and I would save. What must I do now that I'm saved? What must I do now that I'm saved? Once saved, you ought to ask yourself, okay, so now what? And he would say, go and look for opportunities to, be, to show God-like kindness and compassion, even if you don't feel like it. The example we should all follow. Here's the example, not just the Samaritan, but more supremely, Jesus' love for all, even sinners, outcasts, and enemies. Jesus was the one. It says that he, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scarcely would somebody die for a good man, but God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the example. Ask God, help you love. Love beyond your capacity. Love like him. And then the lesson we should all learn. It's not what you do, it's what he's done. And because of what he's done, now you must do. Hmm. I don't know if this resonates with you. But our world needs some people who know how to love their enemy. As themselves. Who knows how to pick up the tab even when they've been done wrong. We need to know that we were never supposed to ostracize each other because we're Samaritans or we're Republicans or we're Democrats or we're this or we're that. We're supposed to say, I love God and he's loved me. Therefore, I love you through the strength that he gives me. I pray that this emblazon upon you the whole duty of man. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.